Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Alon Tal. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, given the present circumstances. Yeah. Okay. So for people that people could be listening to this years from now, what's the, the way I came to you was an article about the situation in Israel. Hamas just invaded. But the article covered an issue that for me seems very, very relevant, which is population. And it pointed to some graphs of yours that showed the, the, the population growth in Israel and the region. And it reminded me of my podcast guest, Alan Weissman's book, Countdown, where he talked about how on both sides of the Jordan, the populations are, it's, I'm going to speak how it comes to me. It, it might not be the best way of putting it, but how both sides are using population growth as a weapon to colonize more land. And I, until his book, I couldn't really talk about population because it felt like there's so many landmines because people immediately jump to say, oh, you must be eugenicist. Didn't the Nazis do that? You want to, uh, who's, oh, you want to die first? Things like that. And then I find this guy, you, who has served in the Israeli Knesset. Your background is Harvard, Stanford, UNC Chapel Hill. And then and I said, I got to get this guy on the podcast. So we, we've been going back and forth and you're in the middle of a war zone, if that's not too strong a way of putting it or not too weak a way of putting it. And so we were, we were able to find a time to talk. So many things we could talk about here. I'm inclined to start with your background, learn about how you decided to start approaching population. I would just say one thing about the present circumstances. Yeah, please. You know one thing for sure about crowding, and this happens with all mammals. The natural thing for an animal when it gets under crowded conditions, we find is either fight or flight, okay? And uh, humans are mammals like anybody else. And so crowded cities are more violent cities, have a higher crime rates. We know that the Gaza Strip is one of the most high-density places on the planet. I have little doubt that part of the barbarity that we saw on October 7th that exploded from the Hamas terrorists had to do with spending where young people spent their entire lives in very, very crowded environments. And one thing we can be sure, and I look at this in Africa and other places that are getting more and more crowded, a more crowded planet is a more violent at, at a very basic level. Is there research says that people who are men in particular who are daily commuters and stuck in traffic have a much, much higher incidence of domestic abuse. And I want to go the, the the other direction. There's no place to get away from it all anymore. I mean, do you ever see these videos of like, it shows a picture of, of the Eiffel Tower or Machu Picchu in the guidebooks, and then it shows what it's actually like. And what it's actually like are these crowds of, of miserable people standing, waiting in line, getting this little quick shot and of not what it's really like. And our lives are, I, I think we, we're lying to ourselves about what our lives are like, that it wasn't that long ago that you could just, Anyone in the world could just walk to solitude in, in the forest or on the beach and no helicopters overhead. And man, just before we hit record, you were talking about Paul Ehrlich and, and I was thinking about Julian Simon and how he talks about how we can just have infinite everything. And But maybe we should get back to your background and, and how you came to talk about population so publicly, how you ran for office. You're, do you mind bringing us up to speed on, on where you came from? Okay. So I, I grew up in North Carolina, but I always was intrigued by Israel after high school. I went there for a year when I was 17, came back to UNC for a couple of years, but after I graduated, moved there on my 20th birthday and really never looked back. When I moved to Israel, there were about maybe 4 million people there. We're going to be at 10 million soon. Mm -hmm. So so you can get just get a sense of how fast this country is growing. In terms of my own background, I call myself a second generation environmentalist. My father used to work for the US EPA and bring home his challenges. He was an analytical chemist. We talk about, you know, answer rates in New Orleans as a result of the contamination of the Mississippi River and these kind of things. And I guess something, whatever. So as I think about what my contribution would be in Israel, the environment made sense. But here's the thing. The more I started dealing with environmental problems, I started a environmental advocacy group, which is sort of based on NRDC, which I think today is still the most influential and significant environmental group in Israel, the Israel Union for Environmental Defense. But the more I started dealing with these problems, I realized that I was dealing with symptoms and not with causes. 
And like some sort of a Dutch kid was trying to put his finger in the dike every time I said, you know, you are unable to deal with all these problems because the more people they are, the more environmental insults they are, and the more impossible it is to get the actual progress. And I really do think that the notion of sustainable growth over time is an oxymoron. Okay, there's the there's understanding the situation, and I you know I completely agree. It's like I, one of the things I've been saying lately is because I've been doing a lot on I see abolitionism as a role model for movement, and so I look at Abraham Abraham Lincoln didn't go to the plantations, he went to the halls of power. That's where to change the the structure, and of course people are people are suffering, and, and someone should help them, but looking only at the symptoms, you're really not going to fix things. Well, I think you're, you're right that. At the end of the day, we hit glass ceilings very early in civil society as somebody who, you know, sued polluters, sued the government many, many times in academia. I've tried to make an influence. But, you know, at the very best, you kind of are lucky if you capture the attention of a decision maker, you know, for a few minutes. And at some point, if you feel that you have a reasonably informed and have an alternative vision, you have to try to become one of those decision makers. That's the responsible thing to do. And so Israel is a somewhat different political system, say, in the U.S. If I was in America growing up, I would have hung up a shingle and opened up a can of hand quarters and run for Congress or something. And this was a little bit different. So the environmental movement got together about, gosh, now 15 years ago, we created a Green Party. One thing led to another. Eventually, I was chair of it. But the trouble is, is that like many parliamentary systems, we have what's called a threshold. In other words, in Israel, if you don't get 3.25% of the votes, which is a lot, for a new party, you cannot be accepted. All your voters' uh, ballots are disqualified. And so it's a big, almost like a, a game theory problem. How do you get people to believe? Because there's a lot of people who would like to vote for a Green Party. They just don't believe that there's another 3% that are going to do it. So after uh, we failed the first time uh, to get in, I realized that we have to join a larger party. And it happened that my commanding officer, my company commander, when I was in the paratroopers, when I was 20 in Israel, his name is Benny Gantz, and he uh, retired from after being chief of staff of the military. And when he created a party, I knew he was the kind of person that I wanted to work with. On the one hand, he is very much at the heart of the Israeli mainstream, but he's he's a, a decent person. He's intellectually honest. He's incredibly courageous. That I can say firsthand, having watched him, you know, in, in the in battle. So it was very easy for me to join his party. Took several elections, but eventually I got in. In the last election, we merged, and as a part of the merger, a lot of us agreed to go further back in the list, so I didn't get back into Israel's parliament, but I have every intention of returning, because I can tell you, as the former chair of the first subcommittee on climate and the environment in Israel, what you can do there, just in terms of oversight, not even talking about being in the executive, is is just dramatic. And we think about the progress in America environmentally, you think about the heroes who made a difference. The guy named Henry Waxman probably doesn't mean a lot to many people, but for those of us in environmental law, know what a difference he made in terms of the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act over the years. So yes, politics is critical. And when we talk about this issue of population, it's very important that the public hears political leaders who are willing to go on the record and talk about this. One of the interesting anecdotes about American environmental history is that the only president I think who ever actually spoke about it in a State of the Union address was Richard Nixon. President Nixon was concerned about overpopulation and raised it as an issue. And we don't have to give Richard Nixon enough credit for being actually a, quite a fine environmental president, but that's another discussion. But yes, it's very important that we have political leaders, elected officials who are willing to talk truth about sustainability and population. I want to go, with the, I feel like there's a middle step all right, you got the science or you got the understanding of the situation, then you became a politician. But I feel like there's a middle step of you must have stepped on a few landmines or the, how to get to go from. All right, I know a lot of scientists who know a lot of stuff that's very useful information. And I know a lot of people who speak very well. There's not a lot of overlap there. There's a lot of scientists <laughs> who will come out and like, here, look, I'll give you, look, how many more facts and numbers do you need me to tell you? And I feel like they're like, telling a cigarette smoker more and more facts about lung cancer from the smoker, it's that, that's not going to help them. Well, I, I was very fortunate to have a role model relatively late in my career. But in 2012, I was on sabbatical in Stanford and had the good fortune to have an office contiguous to that of Paul Ehrlich, who was really the, I think, the prototypic scientist. I think he's probably the greatest American ecologist 
of the 20th century discovered coevolution and has all kinds of innovations in the scientific field. But of course, he's well known for the population bomb and being the face of the environmental movement in the late 1960s and early 70s and talking without fear about overpopulation, on which he influenced my thinking about it. And then to spend so much time with him, I was really fortunate to become friendly with him. And uh, as a result of that, I ended up writing a book. And as a result of that book, we ended up setting up an NGO, the first one in Israel, which addresses, it's called Tzafuf, which means crowded, but it's an attempt to raise this issue in the public discourse. And so, yes, there is a stage. And yes, my wife said she's going to have to hire some sort of a bodyguard because the feedback I got when my book came out, people would say, oh, you know, you're worse than the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh only killed the firstborn boys. Let the girls live. You want to kill all the boys and the girls, you know, and all kinds of other disinformation. But the truth of the matter is that you know, 2.1 children is the sustainable replacement level. And uh, at some point, you I always ask the same question when I would have been in these debates. Okay, let's say that I'm wrong. How many people do you think could actually live between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea? You know, 200 million? Oh, that'd be too much. Okay, 50 million, 40 million. Now we're just negotiating. Now, mm-hmm. Once we accept that carrying capacity is an actual thing, okay, and that there is a limit to people. My argument always has been, though, that we should not get locked into ecological definitions of carrying capacity, which talk about maximum number of organisms in an environment. Because what we want to talk about is optimum carrying capacity. At what point does more people deteriorate the quality of life? And at what point we want to really reach stability? And I'm going to have that discussion. It could be that we could have more people in Israel. We're almost 10 million people now. I think we're way too crowded. But let's say we could have 15, but at least let's have that discussion where people are going to have it on the table rather than racing forward. Because what we do know is because of demographic momentum, you don't turn off population growth overnight like it's some sort of a pollutant that you close on in a factory. No, this takes literally a couple generations to stabilize. So many things I want to follow up on. And I want to go back to you and Paul Ehrlich because I wasn't, he was on Johnny Carson, what, a dozen times? 13, I think, yes. It's amazing. You can still see some of them on YouTube. It's crazy. He was so irreverent. He still is, but it was, it's quite amazing that he got that kind of, you know, prime time, prime time, 11 o'clock coverage at the time. It was the only late show there was. And did you hear, did he tell you about how that happened? Because I wasn't thinking about, about gumption leading to, or chutzpah leading to opportunities like that. I, I've been holding back, but maybe I shouldn't. Well, first of all, I, I should tell all the listeners out there that if you want a good autobiography, Paul Rogers, and it came out in 2023, it's called Life. And he talks about his long relationship with, with Johnny Carson, which was a shock to him. But he was on there so many times that the actors union got very angry because they said, you're not a member of the actors union, you're taking up a space of celebrities. So he had to join the actors union, not to piss off the Hollywood uh, crowd. But I think Johnny Carson was just a thinking person. So when this book came out, uh, Paul was a household name. You know, was a, a bestseller. Even you know, he could, he, even though uh, he wrote it, he says in a weekend because he at the time he, he was getting paid I think six thousand dollars a year at Stanford. He could make a living. Imagine what they make now. But in those days, it wasn't such a lucrative thing. But um, eventually, this book was a huge uh, success, and uh, and he went on once. And I think that Johnny Carson was captivated by a scientist who was not afraid to take opinions and was very. I mean, he's got a great sense of humor. You know, it was a big, tall guy. Anyway, I think he was on there many, many times and became the face and the and the voice for so many of the sustainability concerns at the early stage of the environmental movement. And were you channeling that when you were you learning from him, not just the views, but also the way of expressing the the mindset driving it? Absolutely. The second sabbatical when I wrote the book, The Land is Full, I would have less than two or three times a week. And I always come by, you know, well, when they ask me this, how do you respond? For example, I'd say, you know, they always say it's not overpopulation, it's overconsumption. If only the Western people would have consume less, then we would be able to live on the planet. The problem- oh, Sorry to interrupt, but I think, and then here, he's going to talk about a rectangle and there's the base and the exactly. height. Exactly. So he yeah. said yeah, that what you tell them is, is that we have exactly a rectangle. We don't know which side is longer. It could be population is the long side of the rectangle. It could be a, a consumption, but the volume of the rectangle stays the same. I said, well, that's very clever. I even wrote an article called The Two Sides of the Rectangle. So, yeah, it, it was very nice to have that because, you know, I was going to step on landmines, but at least I would have a response. And he's so clever and has been doing it for so long. But, you know, he, he's he been called everything, you know, certainly the racist 
and the eugenics, all this stuff, but he, he could not, he didn't back off as so many environmental groups did because it just was uncomfortable. Environmentalists are wonderful people, but some of them tend to be thin-skinned. And I think when we're talking about the future of the planet and all the ecosystems in it that we're destroying, we don't have that luxury, you know, just, you know, backing off because we don't want to be politically incorrect. We're not really, you have to tell the truth. And any scientist will tell you that there's something called capa- uh, carrying capacity and that humans have long since succeeded in on this planet. Do you mind sharing any of the landmines that you stepped on? Because what I'm curious about here is the, how did it feel for you? Did you ever feel like, oh my God, I, I just want to give up? Or did you ever feel like depressed? Or did you ever feel threatened? And how'd you get over it? If so, or if not, am I worried for no reason? I don't know. I, I don't think I ever, my wife was much more nervous than me because some of the, you know, you get these talk back people writing you very nasty things on your Facebook page and things like that. I don't think I ever really felt threatened. Although I'll tell you the truth. I always felt like it's very easy to, to raise these issues in certain circles, like amongst environmentalists. The challenge is to go out to the people who are having so much, so many kids and talk to them. And I said, try that on several occasions and always try to do it respectfully. But yeah, sometimes there was some, you know, a lot of people who bristled or were said nasty things. I kind of, it's just a question of sense of that we have to be willing to talk about this because if we don't, we're not going to leave our children a planet that's inhabitable. I mean, already, you know, let's talk about Africa. Okay. Well, let's globalize this before I get back to Israel. In 1950, there are 220 million people living in Africa. Today is about 1.2, 1.3 billion. The United Nations says by the end of the century, there'll be 4 billion people. Now, this is a, a continent that is the poorest continent on the planet, cannot feed itself. It is the most violent planet on the continent. It is the planet where everybody wants to leave and move to someplace where it's not so crowded, okay? And so the truth of the matter is, is we can say, well, we really can't talk about overpopulation. But if we don't, we're going to cook because the level, for example, of deforestation and what that's doing in terms of carbon release, or just in general, every child that is born on this planet is born with a carbon footprint. That's their birthright. And so when you're talking about adding another two or three billion people, and they all want to have the same, you know, Western lifestyle we have, and I'd like to give it to them. I don't think that's fair that people who live in Europe and North America can live one way and everybody who lives in the global South lives another way. But we have to recognize what it means to have 10 billion people living at a level of like the United States. So first of all, we have to change lifestyle and consumption does matter. It's not a false dilemma. It's a real challenge we have to do. We have to move to climate tech. My most my book that's coming out in April is about just that, how are we going to change ourselves and move over to a more sustainable economy? But yes, we have to talk to people and work with a growing movement of Africans who realize that their their fertility levels are unsustainable. Yeah, well, and now going back to countdown and the mindsets of people. I mean, there's pl- Israel is. I mean, okay. I don't know if we're getting too close to the present, but it feels like what I picked up from from Alan Weissman's book is that on both sides of say the Jordan River or of the West Bank. People want territory. And so they're, as soon as they get some space, they're going to have a lot of kids and say, well, you can't push me out of here. And so everyone wants to, ha- like, it's a way of fighting without fighting. And, but, and now the Jordan River doesn't reach the Dead Sea anymore because there's not that much water there. And, and people will say, oh, well, you know, look at, they can just desalinate water. And that's how much do I want to, jump into why that doesn't work. I mean, it, it can work in the short term, but it doesn't seem like a, a long-term solution. I'll say that, first of all, I think that you're right, that population is weaponized by both Israelis and Arabs. On the Israeli side, you have to remember that the country was established after the Holocaust. A third of all Jews in the world were murdered, and there was a sense, a solemn obligation to return those Jews. And then when the country was established, it was very, very uh, sparsely populated, or six, only 600,000 people here. And so there was a sense that we have to create these demographic facts along the border to create, to establish our sovereignty. And that was yeah, definitely in large, having large families was considered a patriotic act, okay? And it was maybe at, at, at that time. But now Israel is the most crowded Western country in the world, okay? In a sense, essence. And in present, with present tense, by the year 2050, we should be the most crowded country except for. Bangladesh, 
in the world. And so at some point, you have to change the narrative, okay? With regard to the Arabs, there was a tragic, I think, situation. First of all, in general, the Palestinian story is, is a tragedy of bad leadership, of intolerance, and making the wrong call historically. But one of the ways that they tried to enlist the Palestinian people in their war against the, the Jews in Israel was the, you know, when Yasser Arafat said that the secret weapon of the Palestinian people is the rule of the Arab mother. And so having a large number of kids was basically in the sense that we can't beat them in the battlefield, we can beat them in the bedroom. And all this did was create a race to the bottom. In the end, the numbers are more or less the same in terms of that. But the populations in the West Bank and Gaza are very, very poor. And that's just understood. That's this basic division. If you have a certain income that you can generate, and then you divide it by five, six, seven, eight children, you're obviously going to be left with a lot left. And so, unfortunately, rather than working together and creating a Garden of Eden in this you know, promised land area and sharing the spaces and, and learning to get along, the population has indeed been divisive. And whenever I do raise this issue, there is still a small percentage which still say, you know, but we need the soldiers. And that's what certainly what they're going to be saying after this present war with Gaza, because Israel has lost you know a few hundred soldiers, and each one is a tragedy, and it's a very hard. People are not rational about these issues; they don't see it necessarily. But there is a sense that we need to breed more soldiers. Yes, that is a narrative which is has a lot of traction with certain people in this country. So you're describing two different motivation, uh, what's the word, incentives, or is it? Government and religion. Because I've also had on, I, I want to throw in here that I had on the podcast, this is a long time ago, but he was a, a student at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, I think. And he talked about also, that's our secret weapon is we're just going to have more and more kids and that's how we're going to you know, take over. So religions seem to have, not all, but many seem to have this thing of like, we're, we are going to just populate more. And also governments. I mean, people are so quick to say, you can't have the government in the bedroom. And they, they're so quick to say, like Nazis, eugenicists, and so forth. But governments are always, I mean, what's the ratio of, of governments saying hold off on population versus pushing population? And also, I came across, talk about, there's, I found a, a medal that the Nazis gave to women who had at least like 10 kids or something like that. Like, Stalin did it as well. Stalin, yeah, Hitler and Stalin were the two that pushed really overtly have more and more babies and also growth in like highways and all this. And I'm like, if you're talking growth, that's where, I mean, they're like the masters of it. I think there's a couple of things that I want to understand. First of all, Israel also actually in the 19, early 1950s had a medal for women who had 10 children. This was their first prime minister, Ben-Gurion's idea to encourage because the European population that came here had 2.5, 2.6 like Europeans did at that time. And he wanted to have more for the political reasons. And sort of like four or five years into the program, one of his aides apparently whispered in his ear, you know, Mr. Prime Minister, last year, 95% of the people who got the 100 lira, you know, the maybe they say a $10,000 prize or something like that by today's standards, 95% of them were Arab women. Was that what you, Arab, because we have 20% of our country's Arabs, is that what you really wanted to do? And of course, he quickly and somewhat maybe awkwardly canceled the policy. But yes, there there is that sense that, and, I, and I'll say when people, when I talk about certain policy alternatives in Israel and suggest that we cancel the, the child allowances. People said, how dare you, you know, let the government get into people's bedrooms? And I always say, me? The opposite. The governments of this country and many other countries are sitting in people's bedrooms handing out money. Have more kids, have more kids, okay? And so at the very least we can do is, is stand back at least and be laissez-faire and just say, look, if you could afford more kids, fine. I mean, I don't want it. And Israel to adopt a, a Chinese one-child policy or anything like that. I'm not against that. I think it was a horrible violation of human rights. But I do think that it there's something called perverse incentives when you pay people to do the wrong thing in terms of the public interest. You know, when you subsidize water so people waste water. There's all kinds of examples of, of crazy situations where with that. And that's what you do when you are in a planet that is too country, uh, crowded. Now, you might say in a European country, you know, in a Latvia or a South Korea, it's only with 1.4, 1.5 kids, there makes sense. And I could, couldn't argue with that because I do believe societies have a, a right, to people could even say responsibility, to replace themselves, to, to perpetuate their cultural 
assets and heritage. But certainly in a country like Israel, which is so very crowded and has 3.1 kids per woman in terms of total fertility, about twice the average of the OECD, that's a crazy policy. What's the reaction of people? I mean, I guess you've been... When did you first start speaking publicly in Israel and... How is how how were you received then? How have things evolved in time? So it's funny. I first actually went came clean with this in my first book, which was called Pollution in the Promised Land, and that came out about twenty years ago. But it was very, very how should I put it? My my thoughts were very intuitive and not very very well based. So only when I came out in twenty sixteen with my book, The Land Is Full, based on the line from Genesis, you know about the be fruitful and multiply and make the land full. So I said, okay, we had a command. It's the first commandment of the Bible. We've done that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I was going around. I was doing the, the talk show scene on the Israeli television. And I was a very famous talk show host. And he, we had a winter commercial break. And he said, you know, I wasn't supposed to be doing today's show. This was, he splits the days with another person, but I got his days. And when I saw that there was going to be somebody talking about it, I said, who is this misanthropic asshole? Like, who can I find? And he, he said, but you know, now that I've listened to what you have to say, it makes perfect sense. I guess you're right. I just never thought of it. And that's the whole point is the more people hear about it, this notion that you can grow forever, it's just, it's its insane. I mean, that's the creed of the cancer cells, you know, but it just doesn't work that way. And so really what we have to realize is that at the heart of any sustainable vision has to be stability. Because what happens otherwise is, is you find yourself running on a treadmill. Okay, that's exactly what happens. As much as you try to reduce your, you know, per capita greenhouse gas emissions, as much as you try to reduce your production of solid waste, you name whatever it is you're trying to do, as much as you're trying to get better health care, better education, you're not going to get there because it's going faster. If you are living in a in a Switzerland, a place which has a you know stable population, then you might be okay. And so that's really what we have to explain to people that quantity of life eventually begins to compromise quality of life. And so we must do much, much better in, in understanding that there is an optimal level of population and we shouldn't pass that level. It reminds me of, I had an, another guest on the podcast who was an engineer at Exxon for many years and he joined the company because they're saying how they wanted to become more carbon neutral or something like that. And as he joins, they never, ever did anything like that. And so finally, he what got him to leave the company was he said to his manager, Listen to the episode to get it exactly right, but it was something like, we're always saying that we should decrease the amount of emissions, and yet we're not doing anything about that. And the manager said, yes, we believe the world should decrease the emissions, but we want our share to increase. It's the same, right? I mean, anyone who does systems theory picks up on the system situation here. So there's a lot of people out there who are like, yeah, the world should do that, and we should not well, I, I, I use the analogy in Israel of the stretcher run. When you're in combat unit in Israel, one of the rituals that you have during training from day one is a stretcher run. Basically, you take one of the persons from your company, hopefully one of the lighter ones, you throw them in a stretcher, probably take four or five of them. There's about eight people per stretcher. And you run 30, 40, 50 kilometers with them. You know, it oh, takes, you know, six, seven hours. And the idea is, is that in warfare, you may have to get somebody off the battlefield and run four or five kilometers. But if you've done 40, four or five is nothing. Okay, that's the idea. And always, very, very quickly, you realize there's always one or two people who, when you raise your hand and saying, I've been carrying the, the stretcher for about an hour now, please somebody take my place. They don't come under the stretcher. Okay, we know who those people are. And those people are what we call in Hebrew sociopaths. I mean, they're, they're, they're not the kind of people you want your daughter to marry. And the thing is, is that when you have a situation where we have a climate crisis and a, and a, and a country says, well, I'm not going to aspire for a stable population. I'm going to keep growing because I want to have more influence or whatever. Well, they're that person who won't get under the stretcher because the, the international community has gotten together and said, we must carry this sick planet of ours to a healthier place. And now everybody has to understand how we can do that. And I want to refer the listeners to a wonderful article from 2017 by Seth Wine that appeared in Environmental Research Letters. And basically asked an easy question. His question was, what do I have to do or what can I do to reduce my individual carbon footprint? And it's full of things you could do. You could 
Now use a, a dryer for your clothes. You can have an electric vehicle. You can ride a bicycle instead of having a car. You can use uh, renewable electricity. There's all these things you can do, but 50 times more than any single thing to reduce your carbon footprint is have one less child. Think about it. Actually, I can do you one better. Okay. Do it. I'm not going to you have two less childs. No. Learn effective leadership skills because then you can affect... I mean, you're affecting... If there's 10 million people in Israel, you're affecting 10 million people. And aspire to, I don't know. <laughs> okay, yeah. I think they, you're giving me much more credit than I'm deserving of. But yes, I at least I'm trying. At least I can look my kids in the eye and say, I'm doing what I can for you, for your future. The original name of this podcast was Leadership in the Environment because I just oh, wow. see a total lack of leadership. I, I see a lot of management, you know, so giving people facts and numbers and telling them what to do. That's not going to change culture. That That's not effective leadership and it doesn't inspire. So, I don't think we'll have a chance to do it on this one because I want to ask you so many questions. If it, I, I try to keep it conversational style, but I have developed this leadership technique called the Spodic Method, where it leads people to share their intrinsic motivations, their 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 emotions on the environment, and act on those. It's a very different thing to say to pollute less because uh, Bangladesh is going to be underwater, and if you don't do it, then you know. Versus when you think of your experiences in the environment and what it means to you and to do something for yourself, even if it's very small, if it's meaningful, then people want to do it again and they want to, then they want to share it as opposed to, and then, then you're sharing joy and freedom and fun and living by your values. I think you are spot on. I think the Spodic leadership method is, is one that is really onto something. I have a very dear friend and close colleague. She was my first master student that I advised and doctoral student. Now she's like a professor in my department of public policy at Tel Aviv University, Professor Dorit Parrott. And she became very, very interested in developing this, what she calls positive sustainability. There's something called positive psychology. You know, the notion mm -hmm. that how are we going to get people to do things? It's by giving them bite-sized things that they can actually do that are good for them. If I tell somebody you have to lose 50 pounds, they're going to be completely overwhelmed. But if I say, you know, you can lose a half a pound this week and we can give you a really special diet to do it, that's something which they can actually get their arms around. And to find ways to do so, she's a whole theory about positive psychology. She brought it to sustainability discussion. And when we looked at, we wrote an article about this, how they could apply this towards advocating for, you know, reasonable family size. And the truth of the matter is, you're absolutely right. You're not going to get it by getting people to change a decision which is so intensely personal and based on self interest, like having the number of kids you have, by doing something good for the planet. But you could explain to them that we know. Statistically, in every society, a smaller family is a happier family. That after you have two kids, it is downhill in terms of the number of children who become dropouts, okay, or uh, juvenile delinquents, divorces, domestic violence, all these indicators of well-being. And certainly the relationship between kids, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh kid, have a much worse relationship 20, 30 years later than if you just have two. In other words, two is optimal. And so if you can convey this message the two really is better. It's a healthier life for everybody, especially if the wife has a career, because men tend not to be that uh, concerned about childcare, but women, for biological reasons or social reasons, whatever it is, are usually hit with the responsibility. And so those are ways we have to do it. But like just like you said, it has to be something positive, something get their arms around, and then it's a positive vision they get a hold of and feel good about, and that does good for them, not good for the planet. Yeah, I want to distinguish... Positive versus intrinsic, because it's it's coming from inside. Maybe we'll, are are you game for doing it? Maybe you, uh, I have so many things I want to talk to you about, but we could do another episode. So we could talk next week, whenever. Okay, so I'm going to do this product method with you, and it's a short conversation. If okay, you, sure. if you don't mind. Okay. All right. The first question I think I know the answer to is the environment something that matters to you very enough much. that you've acted on it in some way. Yes. So when you think about when you think about the environment, when you think about nature. What comes to mind? Like, are there moments in your life when you've been in nature that were like quintessential moments that set the tone that said, like, you in nature, you know, you're not burning fossil fuels, you're not. What comes to mind? So, I actually had a life changing experience when I was 19. I was traveling through Europe with three buddies from UNC, and I decided I needed a little space. So, I decided to walk across the Pyrenees Mountains. I, we were in France, and I said, I'll meet you in Spain. Without cell phones, I don't know how I thought I was going to find them, but it doesn't matter. I did it. And for three days, I was sort of on my own, and I brought with me a book, a theology book. It doesn't matter, but I had this sense of, my gosh. First of all, I was completely 
taken by the sort of radical amazement that comes with being in nature, completely dependent on nature. I didn't bring uh, a canteen. I just drank from the from the streams that were around me. And this sense of, so for me, it was a religious experience in the sense that I'm really a part of nature's creation. And I think when I think about it, I certainly don't consider myself a denominationally affiliated person so strong, but a very intensely religious person that I have a strong sense that I am a part of a creation, sort of a, there is some sort of divine plan and there's a harmony there that I need to find a way to be part of it. That we're, and that we're ruining on this earth of ours. And so, yeah, that thing that came, and I know that for me, I run every morning and I think at a young age, I realized by running in nature, I can save a whole lot of money on psychology bills because when I'm out there running, the problems that I have may be very big when I set off, but by the time I come back, either there are solutions flow, but they don't seem so bad. And I think that's just being out there. So that's a very long answer to your question. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Not at all. I have to ask now. Okay. You're going to walk across the Pyrenees. How, how, is this a, a, a one day walk? This is a week, a, a month? I thought I didn't know exactly. We, we, I said, I'll see you in three or four days. In the end, I ended up walking back because it was a long story. I hitchhiked back to see the might. I actually fell and cut myself, whatever. It was fine. But I think it was that sense we live in worlds that are human created. And all of a sudden, you allow yourself the vulnerability to get out into nature without any, I didn't have a tent. I mean, when it rained, I got wet. And that was a, that was a real change because you realize how we've created these worlds where it's very hard to be in touch with any kind of sense of, uh, I don't know, holy essence of the, of the earth. And all of a sudden you're out there and it's just you. And then you, I didn't see a human soul for three days. You know, I was 19. I, I hadn't read any environmental philosophy. It was just a crazy whim that I had, but I'm glad I had it. Yeah. It sounds like very more formative than you expected. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Can you share some of the moments, maybe the, the sensory experience of there? Like, what did you smell and hear and touch and see? Well, first of all, I think the one that was amazing was that it was so quiet, but you heard things like, you know, birds and without any background noise. That was the first thing that was most, the, the landscapes were ethereal. I mean, you know, long, the sort of, if you've ever seen that picture, some of the Pyrenees mountains, you go up one mountain, you go down another, but it's just a very, very undulated and beautiful green, green landscape. But it was the streams. It was the gushingness. I mean, again, you know, I, I live in Israel where we have water shortages. And so this sense of the mother is just gushing out with water was, you know, and then that's what I really needed to get by, you know, just whenever I was thirsty, I'd say, oh, it looks like there's a stream up that way. So I found that to be really the one thing that I, I took with me. But mostly it was just the calm ability, the t- contemplative solitude. That's what I really liked. Yeah, the, you mentioned the sound. I've been noticing this distinction that when we're in nature, it isn't quiet. There are noises, but it's quiet. It's like the wind through the trees isn't noisy. How do we, what's going on there? Have you thought about that? I have thought about it because I read the Bible. And if you read Elijah, after he killed the two gods, the three Sabal, he went and escaped into the desert. And he heard the still small voice. It's a whole section there that I you can read about in the book of Kings. And it's very worth reading there. But it's clear that his epiphany started from the the sounds of silence, if you will, to, to, to use Paul Simon's phrase. Yeah, but it's, it's in the, it's, you have to ask yourself, why is it that all the prophetic insights, you know, when Jesus went out and found, you know, he was out there, all, all these people had these incredible experiences out in deserts, which are, you know, theoretically desolate places. And yet there was something about the power. I always say it was like seeing mother nature without her makeup on, you know, we could just see just that's um, what there was. And they've left an imprint and changed these people's, their visions. All right. So you're back. Was it cold? Was it, because I think of, I don't know what season of the year it was, but you're saying it was very Summer green. Probably. So I guess it was. I, I, I was, I had a sleeping bag, but it was cold, especially when I got wet. But, you know, when you're 19, you don't feel that stuff. I mean, you know, I was, I really wasn't, I was in, I was like, I was singing. I was, I loved being it. I mean, it was, it was freedom is what it was. I'd never done anything like it before. You know, you, you live in very, very clear framework structures. You don't really take chances. This was like, that's just something crazy. I mean, a year later, I did something crazy. I moved to Israel and joined the paratroopers. But yeah, I think that those are things you want to do when you're 19 because you're not going to do it as you get older and, and more boring. You're not going to get it. You know, I wish I, I wish I could take a trip like that again. Maybe I will. Yeah. When I was 16, the summer between high school and college, my friend and I rode our bikes from Philadelphia to Maine and back. 
So wow, fifteen hundred miles, and I thought it's a long ride. Yeah, it was very. I mean, on the emotional level, it sounds very similar. Although the situation was different. So you're okay. Back in this moment, or these, this time, what were the emotions that you felt? I mean, you mentioned freedom. I'm not sure if that's an emotion. And what was the emotional experience? So I, I think the one word that characterized my the, that particular experience is exhilaration. I felt like a, a high, you know, there was no, there wasn't even caffeine to drink there. I mean, it was, it was nothing about it, but there was just something about being out there. And I don't know, I just felt like part of this greater whole that was just, you know, I'd never had that experience before of being so, because usually, you know, I'd go hiking, but I'd be with people and you're talking with people and you can, you know, but, you know, but on your own, you, there was no, I had no map. I just, I knew I wanted to go south. That was the, the general direction. Then I sort of followed it there. Very intuitive, very, very. Yeah, but I remember being very, very... I had a similar experience once I climbed up Mount Kilimanjaro. This was already three or four years later. And I got up at five in the morning and I was only I was the first person at the top. And I remember it was cold. That was cold because there was snow on the ground. I don't think there's much snow there anymore, unfortunately. But there was at the time still snow. And I was the only person up there. And I was singing and praising the Lord and all stuff like it was. It was very, very... So I think there's a natural for those people who love nature... It's not only, it's not a somber experience, and it's joyful. So given the, the exhilaration, the joyful, the the freedom, I invite you, if if you want to, I mean, we're just, this wasn't planned, to think of something you could do in your regular life now to create those feelings. Now, you won't get exactly the same exhilaration. I mean, you might, or exactly the same freedom, but to do something that you're not already doing. I mean, you're, 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 you're jogging, which you say brings that, does that, but something different, something, three constraints are something that you're not already doing, something that you do yourself. So not, I'll get my kids to do X or, you know, I'll teach some, some other people some stuff and something that there's a physical component that you don't have to measure anything, but after you're done, you have to be able to have the feeling of like, I left it better than I found it. So it's not just neutrally. I mean, I, now that you've mentioned this and I have not really thought about it since we had this conversation. There were several other experiences. I spent a few sabbaticals in New Zealand, which in my narrow experience is the most beautiful place in the world. And exhibit A, go see the Lord of the Rings. And then if you still don't think it's the most beautiful place in the world, find me something nicer. But, you know, the doubtful sound, I went with my brother on a kayak trip, which was amazing. I went twice from the Milford Trek, which is considered the most beautiful walk in the world with my daughter. She was 12 at the time. So, yeah, there's, if I'm trying to think, how can I duplicate that experience? I think I should prioritize that. So, I'm not sure how I could do it, but you surely got me thinking about other ways you can throw yourself into some of these beautiful places. There's definitely something about the solitude of it or being on your own. Mm -hmm. But I think there's something about the grandeur of creation, which just fills up the batteries. You know, it's like some sort of a direct charge that you don't get when you're distracted with the, you know, mechanics and logistics of everyday life. Yeah, it usually takes people. So every now and then, someone will say, "Oh, you know, I've been meaning to do X for a while, and I'll just do it." This is my chance. I've been putting it off, and now here's my chance. But most of the time, people it, it takes five, ten, sometimes twenty, thirty minutes to like going back and forth of coming up with something. And I think in your case, it might be interesting to have it in part of your regular life. So not flat. See, I contend that nature is actually everywhere. Everyone says this, but all the benefits that you got in the Pyrenees, I believe you can get. You'll never get exactly the same. No, but staring at a blade point. of grass, you're you're right. I think I think that if, if you get your mind focused in the right place, then you're, you're right. I don't think it. You know, it's easier. It's more obvious when you're in these unbelievably scenic places. But yes, I'm surely walking through Central Park. You could find things that are just as inspirational and incredible. And that's just getting yourself in the right frame of mind. That sort of radical amazement, like described it. Yeah, and I think that the more the less we have those experiences, the easier it is when someone says, "Oh, they want to drill in bears' ears." And you think, well, what's that? I don't know what that is. Well, your gas will be cheaper. And the choice between some abstract thing that I have no connection with that and nature, well, we've lost nature in other places that I'm fine. So I guess this, you know, I'd rather have lower gas prices. Whereas if you sense that even where you are, it's worth preserving and saving and even restoring. And I think we are, we are depriving our children of having these glorious places. You know, the, luckily there was a nat- national park system set up in the U.S. Israel has 25% of its land set up across, set up as nature reserves. Some places have been lucky. But, you know, 
remember that when there was the first issue came when the issue of light pollution first came out. It was in England they were concerned. It was about 25 years ago. And somebody said, you know, there's people who spend their entire lives now, they never see the stars. Never see the stars. How can that be? They said, no, how could you have a Shakespeare emerge without the inspiration of starlight? In other words, we we really are sanitizing the environment and, and creating a, you know, so and, and and certainly now that everybody's so virtual and locked into their screens, it's it's on steroids, this disconnect. But yeah, I think there's something to what you're saying there. I'm not sure I have all the answers to your questions, but you got me thinking. Well, I want to go back and forth a bit and see if something comes up or something you could do. And then, then I would ask you to come back and share what it was like. I'll think about it on my, on my jog tomorrow morning. You got me thinking. This is one thing I've learned in doing this is that when someone says that, they really believe it when they say it. And then <laughs> if I talk to them again, they say, oh, I haven't quite gotten to it yet. So I'm going to hold you. Well, we'll I, have another I, conversation and then uh, you can hold my feet to the fire then. That's good. Well, I'm going to hold in now, but it's, I, I don't want to use the phrase, hold your feet to the fire because I don't think okay. it's- it doesn't bother me. Does anything come to mind? Does any direction come to mind of something you might be able to do? No, I think what I need to do is take my busy, busy calendar and say, okay, you're going to take X amount of once a month, twice a month, and and do something that's going to take you to a, a place either that you love or a or a, or see some new adventure. I mean, I did this past summer. I went up by myself to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which is a shockingly beautiful place. Um, there's six hundred thousand people in an enormous area, and there's lake among the clouds up there. I mean, I saw a lot of beautiful things, but it's Lake among the clouds. I could not believe I was in the Midwest. I mean, it was this, you know, it was this very beautiful mountainous area. And I, I feel like that these experiences you can do them, but you have to get yourself disconnected. And that doesn't have it doesn't you can't turn the switch on. It takes a couple of days sometimes to get into the to the, the vibe, you know, till you can really sort of relax and and feel like okay, man, I'm, I I am in a place where I can think about this. But but surely I think that big decisions about life are easier for me to make when I'm... Most decisions in life would come pretty clear to me anyway, but uh, but yeah, I, if I have an issue, I'd like to go outside and do that. Let's move on to other topic. Well, I, I do want to clarify one thing, that you're talking about places that are very far away, and you're talking as if it's a big thing, and there have been guests who have done big things. Uh, one guy said, you know, I've been to a vegan, and finally I'm going to go vegan for the rest of his life. I was like, that's not what I was asking. He's like, but that's what I want to do. Okay, fine. Most people, it's it's not a big thing. And I don't really see something that I, a lot of people hear something that I don't say. And you're not exactly hearing this, so it's not it doesn't apply to you. But a lot of people think I'm saying, what's something you can do to help the environment? And then they feel like it's an out of obligation. And it's no, not. I, I got that part of it. Okay. I'm being evasive because I don't have a good answer or something that I can, that I, but I definitely feel that that what you're saying is absolutely true. Is that if being in these having these experiences is so exhilarating, is such a, is and you could almost define when you know when you remember them so clearly, then that surely you want to make this part of your routine or find a way to to build that into the the fabric of your life. I I think you're right about that. You got me on you know the word go for that. How to do that? I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm involved in a lot of different things, have a lot of responsibilities, but I think you have to make, you have to prioritize a little bit of your spirit and your soul. Absolutely. So you've asked me to move on. So I will move on if we, but if if you're okay with talking about it next week, then we'll see. We'll see how my schedule allows. Maybe I'll be out looking at a blade of grass and then down in the, in the parks down, down, down. Okay. Yeah. So I want to go back to their role models. I, another big thing about Weissman's book was that he talked about, I mean, the big one for me was Thailand. But then Iran, Costa Rica, places that have, cause, and also the one child policy, there were the horrible human rights violations, but people didn't know, no one liked that stuff. There were, there were success stories of cases where governments got involved and helped the situation. They didn't, they weren't pushing human rights violations. They were. Um, there's no, no question that uh, kind of incentives that were offered by Singapore, Iran, places like that were far more effective than the Chinese one-child policy, which was sort of draconian and done imposed top-down when wasn't done. So yes, I think that in terms of empirical success, creating incentives to help people do the right thing alongside with messaging, you know, the famous Singapore Two is Enough campaign, are have proven to be very, very successful. I mean, I understand Deng Xiaoping found that he didn't have a choice when he went to the one-child policy because so many people had died of hunger and he didn't. And that's where they were going in China. So he really felt like he was, you know, hitting something drastic. But I think most societies 
would be better served to design policies which persuade people to do this and maybe even convince them using a little bit of economic tools to make help them do the right thing, a little nudge there. But yeah, I think that that you're right. Those countries are the models in terms of where we should be going. For those countries that have a high fertility rate, someplace like the US, which is a very low fertility rate, below replacement levels has to decide, you know, well, do you want to have more than 330 million people? Is it really could be a better country with 500 million people? I'm not sure. Well, I was going to say about how I think of like Captain Condom and cabbage, cabbages and condoms and having kids play with condoms just so it becomes normal. And making sure that contraception is available to people who want it. And that was the big issue, by the way, during the AIDS. One of the problems that was in certain more conservative community, communities, getting access to, you know, having condoms available was an issue because people, you know, was sort of a taboo kind of thing. And and that was considered a public health intervention. I was studying a doctorate in public health at the time at Harvard. And and one of the things that, you know, talked about is how do you demystify or de, you know, make it more accessible that people shouldn't be embarrassed because it's the difference between life and death when you're in the middle of a AIDS epidemic. So yeah, there they started actually in Thailand because of concern with AIDS, and then it spilled over. The playful attitude towards condoms spilled over to to be a population policy as well. Yeah, I like. I had a guest on the podcast who is developing a vaccine that would, if it goes well, you can you can get another vaccine to turn off. But but it would. People talk about it as like a population issue, but I think of it as really. What it does is it makes sex how you want it to be. Like sex can doesn't have to be an 18 year decision. So it's fun. It's the thing of the matter, the truth of the matter is if you think about it, you're not as old as I am, but when I was in high school and starting to get my basic literacy as imperfect as it was when I was 17, 18 about uh, contraception, it hasn't really changed. I mean, they have a patch now a little bit, but basically it's the same options for women, limited options for men. I know the Gates Foundation was interested in doing just what you're talking about, creating better options. Because, for example, in Africa, one of the problems that women face is that they would like to have fewer uh, pregnancies, but their husband is will be very, very angry and maybe abusive if he finds that she, his wife, is starting to take contraception. And so giving these sort of longer-term options that can be turned on and turned off, it shouldn't have to be like a vasectomy. And I think it would be a, a kind of thing. I think that would be very important for increasing reproductive autonomy amongst women. Very much so. Man, here's a topic. All right. I'm going to, if you want to engage on it, we can engage on it. But this would be a time issue. But whenever pe- people, I, I agree, educate women and girls. They're the limiting factor, I mean, biologically speaking. But if the man is the one who's going to beat them, where's the educating the men? Are they, or do we just accept men are just going to be that way? Is that like, is that like something unchangeable? And it, I mean, yes, you're absolutely right. We should work on educating men, and it makes a difference. For example, the Iranians, when they had their big transformation to become a low-fertility society, there were more vasectomies than there were women who got themselves sterilized. I think there was 200,000 versus 160,000 in the first year. So men were with the program. And there are certain societies, for example, New Zealand, where it is accepted after you have two kids and you've kind of done Consider the audible thing for men to go and get themselves a vasectomy. Now, they freeze sperm in case something should change and there's maybe a divorce or whatever there is. But yeah, and so I mean, when I was teaching New Zealand, you know, during that was that stage in people's lives where they're just, they're pretty much done with having kids. And they're off, all getting off getting vasectomy and Australia has a vasectomy day. So yeah, the, the, there's something about that, which is, seems like a higher level of social evolution. I just don't think we can expect for miracles and for societies to transform themselves so quickly. It didn't happen overnight in New Zealand. It's a, a long process. They're just at a higher level as a society. Well, these are some of the things that I want to I, I want to change things. Well, for generations, we've been saying, all right, we got to ease into this. Let's not, you know, if, and, and if we need to, some future generation, when their backs are to the wall, they'll figure things out. And that doesn't seem to work very well. Well, I mean, I think also when, when I think about the the moral imperative of population stability, I really think about the fact that we owe it to our children not to foreclose all these options on them. Because a planet with 10 or 12 billion people is a very different place than a planet with 7 or 8 billion people in terms of the amount of food you have to produce, in terms of your pressure on all the life-supporting systems. Of the, and so, so yeah, we we can't say they'll figure it out. That That is just... A, unless you don't believe in intergenerational justice, you know. But from my experience, 
stealing from children is one of the most pernicious, heinous crimes you can do. And when we have a population which grows in an irresponsible way and really threatens certain basic life-supporting systems, and look at what's happening with the 69% of the animals that have disappeared in the last 40 years, according to the World Wildlife Fund, we are destroying the planet. And so, no, that is not an option. I don't want to steal from my kids or my grandkids. I want to leave them a planet that is better. I'm failing terribly, but I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to do better. And if we say, well, we'll leave it for them to solve, then we're telling them, you leave it for them, to solve, the, your children to solve. It, it will never get, we're te- we'd like to, we'd like for people to think they, like our kids only listen to what we say and don't look at what we do. Of course they look at what we do. That's a good thing. But the fact that climate change is happening so much faster than the original model suggested, and people are now concerned about moving to a low carbon economy because they realize that it's already hitting them. It's it's their, you know, hurricanes and their heat waves and people dying from heat strokes and all these kind of things. And so that they're really, that it's it, the, the future is now. And so maybe that's the only reason why people are doing it. It's very hard for people to make decisions and to sacrifice so things will be better in 50 years. People are just too selfish. You know, nobody's, we're not, we're not designed that way because life expectancy for homo sapiens was 20, 25 years in the same way as, you know, generations, you know, we, we were a small group animal. That's how we evolved. And so we can kind of get our arms around 60, 70, 80 people. But when you start talking about society, most people can do the rhetoric, but it doesn't really touch their heart. You know. we're, we're, I think we've barely scratched the surface. Part, I'm sure you've picked up and the listeners have picked up that I really want to start. My, my, I've been getting from you, what do you got from Paul Ehrlich, I guess, of the feeling comfortable and enthusiastic about speaking about something that I've, I've really held back on. The, the idea, as I talk more and more about constitutional amendments of entering the public sphere of, of public service, you've done both of these things. So I've been possibly a bit selfish in, of asking you what, like, prepping myself. I, I'd really love to talk to you more about these things. On the contrary. Well, look, Josh, I think that your, your future is going to be in politics because you care about the important things and you realize that you have a limited amount of time on this planet and you have this opportunity to make the, the world better. So I'm very happy. And it's a great honor to be saying that I'm sort of carrying the torch for Paul Ehrlich because, you know, if I, if I could only share even a small fraction of his wisdom. He wrote, he's written 70 books, guys. So anybody, is, there's lots of Paul Ehrlich out there for those of you who are curious. But, and he's, he's all over, you know, the YouTube as well. But yeah, no, I, I think that these are things that we need to talk about more. And, and as uh, both in a planetary and at the level of country, state, or even a community. And, you know, does New York City want to be a, the size of the Tokyo. I don't think it does. You know, there's a one sixty million people. I don't think people will be happier there. So those are things that you really need to think about. Because yeah, we can easily sleepwalk into it. Yeah, exactly. So sleepwalking into it. That's that that's a low point. And I'm also very interested in in seeing how things have played out, what how what we talk about translates into the situation today, which possibly is better left for looking back and with a bit of uh, high perspective. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's one of the, the thought exercises you can do. What if you fifty years from now, what will future generations say about how will they judge us? You know, that's something which we need to think about. Think about too, the, the, so we can be good ancestors instead of lousy ancestors like we're doing. I hope that the listeners listen and get uh, you know raises questions, and we've been sufficiently provocative to get people to think a little bit about their visions and whether or not really you know the goal is to have more and more people with their quality of life is really something that we need to set as the objective function and then figure out how to get there. If they want to follow up more on you, is, is the Lens Full the best place to start? Or what, what's the best place to pick up from here for listeners? Yeah, I mean, Lens Full is certainly, <laughs> it's, it's a great solution if you suffer from insomnia. And you want to know, you read a few pages, it'll know. It, it's, it's, I think it has, it's a, it's a great case study because Israel is a country which is sort of idiosyncratic. And I talk about that. There are other, I think Wise's book's an excellent book too. Mm-hmm. I think that tells a lot of really interesting stories on the global level. Um, I want to recommend a wonderful scientist named Jane O'Sullivan from Australia, who I find her an interesting person. You know, she doesn't get all the academic accolades, but I think she's about the smartest person writing about population in the world right now. And she just came out with a brilliant article about the UN. So Jane O'Sullivan, remember that name? And the, let's make a shout out like we started with, with the Population Media Center, right? Who are doing just fantastic work. And put out really interesting info in there. Every week they come out with new materials. So, so there's a lot of people doing important work, and you can get your inspiration from any of them. You can even get it from Josh Bodick. Alan Tal, thank you very much. All right.
Have a good day. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.